Good morning, everybody. I, I just uh, drive the bus is what I do, isn't that? Um, uh, we're about to be in the second week of our series entitled Spirituality for the Depressed. It's out of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in your Old Testament. Last week we covered chapters 1 and 2. This morning we're going to cover chapters 3 and 4. And Meredith is in the back saying all 4th and 5th graders for kickstart can leave now. That's right, there you go. 4th and 5th graders can leave now. Um, as we mentioned last week, Ecclesiastes is not the biggest pick-me-up book of the Bible. So um, if you're like, this is a great day, I'm so happy, uh, in 30 minutes your tone might change, and so I apologize for that in advance. Uh, Ecclesiastes is more like the grumpy cat of books in the Bible. And so, and I don't know if you know anyone in your life that's sort of like um, a grumpy cat in, in your life, maybe sort of like... For a split second, I thought, I hope he doesn't have a stroke right here and now. That's a... <laughs> there are two voices in Ecclesiastes that you're going to hear. One is the author and narrator who will begin the book and end the book. But the large middle section is the voice of what the uh, Ecclesiastes will call the Koheleth, meaning the teacher. And the teacher will take on the persona of King Solomon as a teaching device. And as we talked about last week, what the teacher is fixated on is the meaninglessness of life. Now, I say this to you up front because um, a faith that can't handle, like, not everybody's happy all the time. And not everybody's okay all the time. Not everybody's living a yippy-skippy, everything's great all the time. Sometimes we walk through sadness, sometimes we work through depression and suffering. And if our faith can't handle that, then our faith is in some way insufficient. Like, how do you have a voice and a language that you can use or that, can, that you can walk through when you're in those moments where not everything's okay? And so, listen, you have no guarantee as a follower of Jesus that your whole life is going to be full of just joy and happiness. Like, it's, you'll walk through times of sadness and depression and confusion and sort of just abject boredom. And if you're in that place, and I'm not everybody is in this place, but you've probably been there before or you're going to be there soon, uh, Ecclesiastes is a book for you. Because Ecclesiastes is focusing on what he considers to be the meaninglessness of life. The Hebrew word that he uses is hevel, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. And he uses it 38 times in the book. Now, if I were a Bible translator and providing an English translation, I would probably, instead of meaninglessness, I would go with absurd. Life is absurd. In fact, last week I used the illustration of that life is good, that made the, the, the t-shirts hear that. And then just this week I read an article that they're going out of business, that life is good, uh, is going out of business. And I said to the first service and they all had a collective, oh, I thought, wow, that's powerful. Like, it's going to be okay. And in its place is now the new company making t-shirts saying life is absurd. That's more along the lines of the writer of Ecclesiastes. By the way, when I walked in this morning, uh, Jeff Gritton looked at me and goes, you look like a flower. <laughs> And what I heard was, you look very masculine this morning, like really tough. Is what I, that's what I heard. But the literal translation of hevel, like literally, is vapor or smoke. And what the teacher is fixated on is how everything in life is like that vapor and smoke. It has the appearance of being a solid, but the moment you try to grasp it, it disappears. It's gone. It is unpredictable. And perhaps the greatest message is it cannot be controlled. You have no control over it. Thus is life. 
And so for the writer of Ecclesiastes, there's plenty of beauty and good and justice in the world, but the moment you try to grasp it, it seems like something bad happens in life. There's some tragedy. There are events beyond our control that makes even beauty and goodness and justice anchors that we just can't grab onto. They're like a vapor, a smoke, hevel. And thus, when you think about the march of time, you come to realize you have very little control in it. You're utterly insignificant. And so as we mentioned last week, you might think that you've discovered something new, like a new technology, maybe you build a new civilization, but then go climb a mountain and see if it cares. No, the mountain is not impressed with your iPhone 10 or your wireless system throughout your house that has so many amenities. The mountain, just like the sun, just like the winds, just like the river and seas, has existed and continues to exist and will continue to exist long after time has erased everything that you think is new and, according to Ecclesiastes, even the memory of you. Life is an enigma, a vapor, a mist, hevel. Hevel, hevel, everything is utterly hevel. And then the teacher specifically lists the things that have proven to be hevel for him, things like wisdom, things like pleasure, even your job, and that's where we left, left off last week. And he will have to back up and somewhat contradict himself because he gets carried away with how meaningless everything is. He'll say, okay, okay, listen, I got a little carried away with myself. If you have the choice between picking a life of wisdom or picking a life of being a fool or stupid, go with wisdom. Like usually in life, it goes better when you choose wisdom. Chances are, the probabilities are, if you go with wisdom, it will be better. Living in the fear of the Lord and pursuing wisdom in the main will be better in regards to your life. But it's still just a chance because death comes for everyone. It's the great equalizer. And the way life works is you would think that the wise in the end always wins, but they don't. Sometimes things happen, things that you are totally not in control of, and even the wise have no guarantees. A wise person can still be struck down by a bomb in Syria, or a wise person can still receive a cancer diagnosis, and while it is better to pursue wisdom than stupidity, there's just no guarantee. Wisdom doesn't work like you think it should. We just know of too many exceptions in life. Good people suffer and die. Wise people can still be subject to catastrophic loss, thus it is meaningless, hevel like a vapor, smoke, chasing after the wind. So, the answer, so what's the answer in all that? Just, oh, we're just depressed all the time? Like, what's the answer? Ironically, it seems to me that the writer of Ecclesiastes says the answer is this, embrace the hevel. And when I say the answer, I, I hold that phrase lightly as the teacher in Ecclesiastes doesn't seem interested in providing us the answer, but it's to realize that you do not have control over all the things in your life. And if you're a control freak like me, you should read the message of Ecclesiastes often. In fact, that might be why I'm so attracted to it, because I tend to think I'm in control all the time. And Kelly is always reminding me, especially when I'm driving in the car, that I'm not nearly as in control as I think I am. Uh, you know, with a little bit of that road rage, like when she's got road rage, it's like crazy, like, no, no, okay, I mean, when I have a road I mean, not only are you not in control, but the person going on the other lane, like, you, don't, you can't control their actions. It's just that idea that you are not nearly as in control as you think you are. And deep down, I know that to be true, but I prefer to live in a world where I do believe I have complete and total control of everything that happens. It would be a false assumption of the kingdom of Sam. But we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Thus, it's hevel, a vapor, a wind. So pursue the best of life, whether it's fear of the Lord or wisdom, 
But no, even that is no guarantee. Which brings us then to chapter 3, and also the band song, Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. Uh, the teacher begins to remind us that there is a time for everything. And here's what he says. These lyrics should be familiar to you now. Verse 1, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and there is a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, there's also a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And the teacher is reflecting on the seasons, and this is very important. Know what season you are in and act accordingly. There are seasons where you can take more risk, right? There are seasons where it's not wise to take some risk, and I'll leave it up to you to determine where that is for you as we're all in different seasons. It's sort of like if you are just... If you just brought home a brand newborn baby from the hospital, now might not be the time to quit your secure job. Maybe now is not the time to launch out in your new business. Just maybe. And, and that's nothing to do with the, your satisfaction of employment. It's just a, a statement in regards to where you are at life in the moment. You're in a season. Some of you are overwhelmed at the moment in debt and grief or one piece of bad news that seems to come right after the other. Just know this. It's a season. You won't always be there. There's another season to come. But if you're wise, you'll know what season you're in. There is a time to scatter stones, and there's a time to gather them up. There's a time to search, and there's also time to give up. There's a time to be sad, and there's also time just to dance. And it'll be important to know about the seasons. One, you know this about seasons, right? They're not immediate. Thus, the word season. See, when it's, uh, and when it's bad in a season, we hate this word. Because most of us could deal with a bad day. We, we've learned that a bad day is not the same as a bad life. But when you're in a season that's bad, that's more than a day. And in a season, at least experientially, it feels so undefined. Like Just think about even the seasons of this year. Like we know the first day of spring this year was Tuesday, March 20th, right? Finally springtime, but what happened for the next month? Yeah, well, it's freezing, it's cold, I mean, snow well late into April. And I don't care what the calendar says, experientially, this season seems long. It's a much longer period of time, much longer than a day, more than a moment. And you're not in control of the seasons. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants you to know. You don't get to decide when summer hits or when winter is over. And this is his main point. It's just a smoke, a vapor, hevel. You can't control it. Living in the seasons is, by necessity, reactionary. It's, it is acknowledging that whatever season has hit you, whether it's love, hate, war, peace, you're just kind of reacting to it. You've got to be cautious because, I mean, the worst decisions I've ever made in my life are the ones that were reactionary. I love to be proactive in things, but Ecclesiastes, I think, is included in the Bible as a warning to all of us proactive thinkers and planners, and we like to make our lists and know exactly what we're going to do next week and next month, and then it's my two-year plan, my five-year plan, my ten-year plan. Ecclesiastes comes around and goes, hevel. <laughs> You know, you don't have the first clue what's going to hit you in the next six months. Having said that, know where you are. 
what season you're in and don't miss it. This might be the season to simply save and hoard and prepare for what is coming, a season to conserve or to be cautious. Or this might be the season to go all in, to bet it all, to risk everything. And I don't know what it is. I just need you to know wherever it is, whatever it is, you're not nearly as in control as you think you are. So if it doesn't break the way you thought, don't get all indignant. That's life, and life is heaven. But try, as verse 10 says here, or verse 9 says this, Ecclesiastes, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. So I mean, it's kind of a negative tone, right? Like the burden that God has laid on the human race. And it says in verse 11 here, and some of your, uh, like the NIV translation, he has made everything beautiful in its time. But I think a better translation, the word is not beautiful, it's just appropriate. Like this is the appropriate time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. And I don't think what he means here is like the afterlife. Like that's what typically comes to mind when we think of eternity. What he means is like as humans, like what we have an advantage over all the other creatures on the earth, we have a concept of time and that we understand past, we understand future, we get a breadth of time. That's the Hebrew word for eternity. He says, and that's what God has placed on us, this burden that we get to see a kind of a broader, wide perspective of thing. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so I know that there's nothing better for people than, and here's a few positive notes in Ecclesiastes, to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil, that this is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. And God does this, why? That people will fear Him. And I think what the teacher is saying is... um, Carpe tempus. And you may have heard the carpe uh, right, diem, the seize the day, but who can determine what you should do in life based on any given day? Like, that's just too brief a span of time. I mean, good grief. If I acted how I feel on any given day, I'll probably kill a guy. Like, I, I just can't act in terms of just how I feel that day. But give me a season. Carpe tempus. That helps me. They don't happen often, but there is a positive note here in Ecclesiastes that is this. Enjoy the simple pleasures. Take a good nap. Watch a good movie. Enjoy a sunny day. Watch the sunset. Go to the concert. Ride the roller coaster. Enjoy a good drink. Have a girl's weekend away. Rent the cabin. But know this, Monday is coming. (laughs) Hevel. Carpe Tempus. Seize the season you are in. So what season are you in? You'll have to decide for yourself, but when you determine what it is, enjoy what you can out of it because you have no idea what season comes next, if there isn't even another season. And what comes next in Ecclesiastes is more proverbial wisdom, nothing that you haven't heard before, but just in case you're not depressed yet enough, let me continue with the next verse 15. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Now, these few verses bring home the reality that injustice and wickedness exist, and that for a time they can even look like they are prospering. 
prospering. And the hopeful tone here is that God will intervene sometime and bring about His judgment. Now, most of us, when we think of judgment, even God's judgment, like that's not a positive thing for us, that's like a negative thing. But this is the hope of the writer of Ecclesiastes. In fact, he will end on this note. Hopefully, someday, God will show up and bring about His judgment. And when He does, it will blow away all of the hevel. That's kind of His hope. And so in it, for Ecclesiastes, judgment is actually, ironically, a positive thing. But the writer of Ecclesiastes is putting, banking no less, his hope that God will show up, judgment will take place, and in it, it's like kind of being confident of your, infin- your, your innocence, like you want to go to court so that you could have a trial and your innocence can be established. That's sort of what happens next. But as you keep reading here in this chapter... The next section is a little questionable, or at the very least disconcerting to us, because we have New Testament ears, and in the New Testament you kind of have a more developed concept of the afterlife. Even though it's still mysterious, the New Testament pictures an afterlife, but that's not clear in Ecclesiastes. There's still some question. And so uh, let me say it like this. If you ever hear a preacher get up and tell you exactly what heaven is like, uh, all you have to say is this, um, have you ever been there? <laughs> and the answer is No. He or she hasn't. They don't know. Even their opinions, what the afterlife is like, will be smoke, vapor. They don't know. And what you should picture in your mind is the writer of Ecclesiastes, he is considering his own mortality, and he is aware that he really doesn't even know what happens next. And so he's petting his dog, Fido, and he isn't confident that they don't both share the same fate. At the very least, both of them will die. And what happens next to both is uncertain. Talk about Hevel. So it says this in verse 18, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is Hevel. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. His point would be that roadkill you saw. (laughs) You are destined for the same fate. I could tell you exactly what's going to happen next. I could explain it in great detail and amazing imagery, but you know what? I'm only trying to grasp a vapor, take hold of a smoke. I don't actually know. So once again, the writer of Ecclesiastes will bring out some positive note, and it's this, carpe opus. What's that? Opus. It is the Latin word for work. Seize your work. Verse 22 says this, So I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? And I could probably preach a little sermonette about each point that is about to be raised in chapter 4, but I just want you to picture somebody who spends an entire week watching CNN or uh, Fox News or MSNBC, and they're just watching the news of all the things that are going on in the world for an entire week, and then afterwards they have to write a commentary on the meaning of life. <laughs> and most likely they'll just see so many bad things and senseless things and prove that we're totally not in control, and that life is heavily absurd, meaningless, a smoke, vapor. And so the sentiment of chapter 4 will not be a shock to you, but let me read it in its entirety so you can feel the weight of more heavily, more absurdity, more smoke and vapor. And I'll also pause in case you brought depression medication with you and would like to take some now. (laughs) It says this in verse 1. 
Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Uh, you'll, you'll catch her, at least he's saying, in spite of all the hevel, laziness is not to be committed either. Like you've got to pick one or the other, don't go with laziness. But... Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. You hear what he's saying here? It's a life of moderation. It is better for you to just have a handful of possessions that you work for modestly in, in temperance with moderate, than you're working 80 hours a week so you can have two hands full of things and really you're just miserable inside and full of stress. That's what he's trying to say. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun, verse 8. Verse 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. Finally, he asked, for who am I toiling, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is Hevel, a miserable business. And then two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep uh, warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and even better, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And it does seem here there's a little tone of uh, community, uh, tempers, the hevel of life. And then he says this verse 13, you'll notice just from politics, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. That youth may have come from prison to be king, or he may have been born in poverty within his own kingdom. And I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. What he's saying is, listen, it's better. You might be king, but that doesn't mean you're wise. In fact, there might be somebody in the kingdom who was brought up in poverty in that kingdom or even came from prison who was much wiser than you. And what I've seen over time is people will follow that youth who came from poverty or prison because of his wisdom instead of that old king. And right, he's going, yay for wisdom, yay for youth coming to great places. <laughs> and then he says this, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. <laughs> you hear what he's saying? People are so fickle. Like, therefore, this young king, yay, that gets to be king. They go, we like this guy better. We want another guy. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. If you're walking through a season of depression, of suffering, of sadness, of grief, we acknowledge and recognize, yeah, sometimes there's real reasons for that. What I'd say is Ecclesiastes is a book for those who might be walking through those seasons, for those who have been jaded in life, who have been victims of injustice, who know all too well that tragedy can strike at any time, for those of you who have lived long enough to experience what the teacher has experienced, maybe he is speaking your language. You know that time and death care very little for title, position, and wealth. You have experienced what it's like to grasp after smoke, or you have attempted to capture vapor, and you know nothing in life is guaranteed. 
Speak to those who are younger than you and remind them of what is better, but even in that, that they have very little control. I've had to leave you with the teacher's message in chapters 3 and 4, it is this. You are in a season, and you would do well to know what season that is and attempt to act accordingly, but you have no control over the season. There is no telling when it ends and a new one begins. So in light of that, carpe tempus, seize the season. Whatever is simply beautiful or meaningful or pleasurable that you can squeeze out of this season, go for that. This too is a gift from God. Carpe tempus. Let's pray together. God, I pray for those who are in a rotten season that they get out of it soon. And even if they are in a rotten season, that even in the midst of it, somehow they'll be able to find meaning and purpose, something that transcends heaven and brings about beauty or justice or good. And for those who are in a good season, we're grateful for that, and I ask God that it would be a long one, full of that prosperity. But in the end, we recognize we have very little control of the seasons, and so we look to you as our God, acknowledging and confessing that you are the one that holds time in your hands, that you are the one who's in control. And I pray, Father, your peace and your blessing and your comfort for those who need to walk out of depression and suffering and sadness, or they can't handle another piece of bad news. I pray, Father, that I'd turn around and a new season begins. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.